From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, constitutional law professor Frank Bowman returns to bring us an update on the impeachment hearings against President Donald Trump. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. House Democrats recently announced they would move ahead with two articles of impeachment charging President Donald Trump with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. They accused the president of violating the Constitution by pressuring Ukraine for help in the 2020 election. What does all this mean for a nation grappling with a real-time civics lesson? Joining me to bring us up to speed on impeachment we welcome back constitutional law professor Frank Bowman. Professor Bowman teaches law at the University of Missouri and is a visiting professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He is also the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Professor Frank Bowman, welcome back to The Public Morality. Glad to be here. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we last had you on, our our, our focus was more on the abstract talking about your uh, recent book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment uh, for the Age of Trump. But a few things have happened since then. And most recently, um, the House has laid out um, the articles of impeachment. Your thoughts to where we are in the process right now? Well, as you said, there's been an announcement just actually within the last hour that uh, the House Judiciary Committee has apparently um, prepared Two articles of impeachment. Uh, I at least haven't seen the text of them yet. I gather the text is to be released later today. Um, this, of course, resolves a whole series of questions, although it opens lots of others. The first question is resolved is whether or not Democrats really would proceed to presenting articles of impeachment. They plainly will. Second question is which articles or which subjects might be contained in the articles. Um, Listeners will probably have been aware that there have been been lots of debate on the Democratic side about what subjects to include, uh, particularly whether the articles should be pretty limited to the Ukraine investigation or whether they might instead include uh, things like emoluments, uh, things like some components of the Russia investigation and the Mueller, the Mueller report um, or other matters. Right now, it looks like it's going to be, and also the other, another question that was unresolved, I think, in the respect to Ukraine investigation uh, was whether or not the Democrats would uh, to impeach President Trump based in part on a claim of bribery or whether they would categorize his behavior in Ukraine affair as an abuse of power. What we know now, I think, although I haven't seen the text yet, is that they're proceeding with two articles, one for abuse of power and another for obstruction of the congressional investigation itself. Um, so that's that's resolving a whole bunch of questions. Uh, the next step, uh, 
then will presumably be some presentation of these articles and debate over them in the full House Judiciary Committee, whereupon, assuming a vote in favor of the articles of impeachment, they would go uh, to the House for some debate and, um, and a vote. Well, Professor Bowman, you, you stated um, initially in your answer that um, other questions are raised, and, and I don't know if you touched on them yet, but what what questions will you um, does this raise in, in, in the process? Well, of course, it raises the question of how matters will proceed from here. I mean, at the most basic level, if the full House votes articles of impeachment, of course, they will go over to the Senate. But there are lots of questions about how that process will proceed, beginning with the simplest question, when. Uh, there's considerable debate about that. Um, the, the most likely event, I think, is that the trial would begin very early in the next year, perhaps not on the first day of the, uh, of the session when they come back, but fairly shortly thereafter. Uh, also, the question of how long such a trial might take and you know, what it might involve. Um, the length question is one I know that's being considered carefully by both parties in the Senate, and largely those considerations are considerations of political advantage, I guess. What length of trial does each party think is essentially in its interest as it tries to put the best face on these proceedings? Uh, my own guess is that there will be a trial of some duration, that, uh, that there will not be a for example, there might be a simple motion to dismiss the thing right out of the box um, that would just shut down all debate immediately. I think they'll probably have some kind of a trial. Uh, my guess is that it's likely to run, you know, at least a, two or three weeks. Um, and you know, then there's the question of what witnesses might be presented. You know, from the Democratic side or from the, the side of those who favor impeaching Mr. Trump, uh, will there be a presentation of live witnesses? Now, in some cases in the past, there really haven't been presentations of live witnesses. Uh, in the Clinton case, there, there was no live testimony. There were some depositions taken, but there's no live testimony in front of the Senate. Um, and uh, they might elect uh, to simply try the case on, on the written record um, that's been developed so far in the House, or they might want to call some witnesses. There's also the question of whether or not, if they do call witnesses, whether witnesses other than those whom we've heard from so far might be called for. Uh, Democrats, you know, in, a, in one set of circumstances, might uh, want to use the subpoena powers of the Senate to compel people like Nick Mulvaney and Rick Perry, John Bolton, uh, perhaps others, to come on down and testify. From their perspective, the Republicans, of course, have been rattling sabers about you know, calling Hunter Biden, Joe Biden. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's been suggestions from the House Republicans that Adam Schiff ought to be called over to testify. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in, in any foreseeable future. But um, there's going to have to be a lot of debate about this because the, the, the rules, one of the interesting things about a Senate trial and an impeachment is that the rules are uh, unique. First of all, uh, the Senate gets to decide its own rules, 
They do have a set of rules for impeachments that was created in 1986 and not updated since then. But it's a really limited set of rules, and it doesn't answer lots of questions. Uh, it doesn't answer any of the questions about length or you know, exactly which witnesses should be called or who should be subpoenaed or any of those things. All of those questions in any individual impeachment trial are really left up to the senators themselves. Some of your listeners may know that under the Constitution, when a president or vice president is being tried by the Senate, the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court presides over that trial. But the role of the chief justice has always been something of a cipher because it's not clear what powers he really has. Uh, he presides, but he doesn't have uh, any ultimate authority to make decisions about even things like what evidence should come in or be excluded, because any decision that he makes can be uh, challenged and overruled by a majority of the senators. It's, it's as if you had a jury trial and all of the judges sitting on the bench, the jury not only would get, gets to decide the facts, but they get to decide all the rules as they go along. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a, a real oddity. What I think is going to happen in terms of uh, the, the rules about length, types of presentation, who the witnesses are going to be, and so forth, uh, what I think is going to happen is that the leadership in the, in the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, are going to be very trying, trying very hard to come to some sort of agreement that essentially lays out the parameters for what's going to happen. Now, of course, they're going to be jockeying for relative advantage. Um, each of them is going to try to figure out you know, which kind of proceeding will be most advantageous to them. But I, my, my guess is that they have, a, they have a mutual interest in having a proceeding which um, has basic attributes of fairness, that doesn't look like it's unduly rushed, that makes everybody uh, look like they are considering considering this very very serious matter in a in a serious way, but at the margins they're going to be angling for advantage, and I think it's uh, for each for their own side, and it's not clear um, how all those negotiations will turn out. Um, in in terms of the obstruction of Congress, um, one of the that um, was put forth today by the House. Isn't wasn't that in your view, or isn't it in your view, uh, necessary if if the, if the legislative branches continue to be viewed as a co-equal branch of government? I do think that the obstruction of Congress is just as important in this case as these substantive charges against Mr. Trump arising from Ukraine, really for the reason you suggest which is that one of the things that makes Mr. Trump's presidency unique is the degree to which, not just with impeachment, but with other areas of congressional oversight, Trump's administration has simply, simply refused to provide to Congress most of the information that it's requested to do its ordinary job. Um, that's one of the things that Congress does, of course. Uh, of course, it, it passes legislation, certainly. But both in order to pass legislation and also in order to act as in its function as 
a check on the executive branch. Congress has to know things. It has to know what the executive is doing. It has to you know what it's doing, why it's doing it, how the money, is, money that Congress has appropriated is being spent, and so forth and so on. Without that kind of information, Congress can't do its job. And uh, while there's always some tension between uh, executive, the executive branch and the presidency and Congress over access to information, always is, regardless of Republicans or Democrats. What we have with Mr. Trump is a really unprecedented situation in which if you talk to people around the Hill, what they'll tell you is that uh, not just an impeachment, but in all, all oversight areas, Trump's basically shut down the flow of information to Congress. If that continues, Congress loses one of the essential components of its power in the American constitutional system. Uh, The impeachment case is really just uh, the most obvious example of this broader trend and and indeed the most egregious refusal by the White House to cooperate. You may recall that some weeks ago the White House counsel simply sent a letter over to the uh, Congress, the House of Representatives, saying, well, we don't think your impeachment investigation is legitimate, so we're not going to give you any information at all. We're not going to give you any documents. We're not going to, you know, we're going to, you know, direct, so far as possible, all executive branch employees not to cooperate with you. Now, uh, people who, you know, haven't been <laughs> obsessively paying attention to all of this might think, well, but wait, the there have been lots of witnesses in the impeachment proceeding, and many of them either were or still are executive branch employees. Um, so how's that? How can a, how can this possibly mean that the executive branch has defied Congress? But all of those witnesses either have left the government and are not subject to any sort of control by the executive branch anymore. Or uh, they simply defied uh, the president's directives uh, or the directives of other people in their departments to uh, and, and came over and testified. Uh, the only reason we know anything about this is because you know career public servants understood that they had an, an obligation to respond to uh, valid requests from Congress and come and speak truthfully about their experience. But of course, there are a whole raft of people who uh, some 12 witnesses whom uh, the House, House sought in, in connection with this investigation um, and who simply refused to appear, uh, including you know, very high-ranking members of the administration. And as has been made clear repeatedly in the proceedings over the past uh, you know, week or two, uh, the executive branch has not provided a single document, not one, uh, in response to requests and or subpoenas from uh, from either the uh, Intelligence Committee, any of the other investigative committees, or the House Judiciary Committee as part of this uh, impeachment investigation. Uh, that's just intolerable. Uh, the government can't work that way. The Constitution can't work that way. And also, of course, there's more than ample precedent for uh, impeaching a president for obstructing an impeachment investigation. That was the third article of impeachment uh, voted out by the House Judiciary Committee against Richard Nixon. And although, of course, Nixon resigned before he could actually be impeached, uh, I don't think there's any doubt of what uh, a total failure to cooperate is itself impeachable. And as, you're, as you said at the outset, um, that, <clears throat> that defiance uh, of Congress by the president is, is deeply, deeply dangerous, more so ultimately 
even than what he did in Ukraine. I, I just don't recall that um, when, whenever we've, in our history, when we've had the executive branch, the powers of the executive branch have been expanded. I'm thinking about Arthur Schlesinger's book, The Imperial President. Whoever, whoever comes in after that says, you know what, the executive branch has too much power. I'll just give some back. I just don't recall those scenarios happening. So th- is there not a danger here that whatever you do here, you're setting a precedent for whoever's in office after President Trump? Absolutely. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, and uh, particularly if, as appears likely, he will ultimately escape conviction. He's going to be impeached. I think there's little question of that. But he will escape conviction in the Senate. Now, sometimes you get resets. You get reassertions of congressional authority and some checks on presidential overreach. And that can happen in a couple of ways. Uh, the, the aftermath of the Nixon business is a good example of that. On the one hand, the impeachment effort in this Nixon's resignation itself obviously provided a disincentive for future presidents to behave the way Nixon did. But there's also a legislative response to all of the Watergate troubles. And uh, a number of laws were passed in an effort to ensure that um, the kinds of things that Nixon did, the kinds of pieces of power that he engaged in, uh, would be at least more difficult uh, in the future. For example, uh, there was the special counsel law that was passed in response to the so-called Saturday Night Massacre, in which um, Nixon fired the original special prosecutor, Archibald Cox. Um, Now, and and also, in in addition to that, uh, there was the Freedom of Information Act was passed, and other kinds of reforms were were passed in the Nixon period to try to pare back executive authority. Um, uh, Of course, even the best-intended statutes sometimes have unintended consequences. Uh, It is generally conceded that the design of the uh, independent counsel statute passed after Watergate was defective, that it created independent counsel who was him or herself perhaps uh, too powerful and too prone to overreach. Uh, and all of that led to the Clinton debacle, after which the independent counsel statute uh, essentially lapsed. And I'm, I'm quite certain that if we, as a republic, if we survive the Trump era, uh, there's going to be at least some interest in reviving something like an independent counsel statute to ensure that uh, there is some mechanism for investigating executive branch wrongdoing and and the presidency itself uh, when faced with a president who's determined to prevent any investigation of of misbehavior by himself or his his supporters. Uh, And what what shape that would take is is anybody's guess. But I think you're also likely to see, again, and we get through all this, you're likely to see other ideas for legislation to try to deal with some of the excesses of this period. Now, you, you mentioned the uh, <clears throat> Ken Starr and, and the potential overreach there. Then I, I, I've heard it put forth that had we had the independent counsel now for Robert Mueller, then Mueller was sort of neutered under the, under the system that he was currently under, and, and um, 
we've had Corey Bretschneider on, and he and he argues that had you if you had the Ken Starr uh, independent counsel rather than special counsel, then it would have given Mueller more latitude to to look at um, the president. So it's oh, that's I think that's absolutely right. Although, um, yeah, I mean, if you if you'd have yes, if, if I think it's, I think uh, Mr. Bretschneider is absolutely right that if Mueller had been operating under the independent counsel statute rather than the rather than as a as a special counsel under current DOJ regulations, he would certainly have had, critically, the pretty much unfettered authority to file charges uh, if, uh, all, uh, against the president if he wanted. But more importantly, the old special counsel statute, uh, or independent counsel statute, rather, uh, specifically gave the independent counsel the power to refer to Congress any matters which uh, he or she believed to be impeachable. I mean, it was on the basis of that authority that, that Ken Starr um, filed his infamous report against Clinton, in which he laid out in great detail what he believed were impeachable offenses against President Clinton. Um, now, you know, to be honest, there are, there are arguments for and against that. Uh, if you get somebody who is you know, zealously partisan in independent counsel's position, and that that carries its own dangers. And certainly, Ken Starr is the embodiment of that problem. Uh, it's it, it's not an easy. There's no easy fix because, um, as a general thing, you do want prosecutorial power to be subject to the control of the president. And as a general thing, you don't necessarily want to have some prosecutorial authority that's floating around out there that is not subject to executive control and is essentially just sort of a fleet free-floating entity uh, that can do whatever it wants and you know, isn't subject to oversight by anybody. Trying to figure out a halfway point between those, uh, those two extremes is, uh, is tough, uh, but I think it's going to be one of the things If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with law professor Frank Bowman. He is the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, Impeachment for the Age of Trump. And professor Bowman, the impeachment discussion seems to be, in my view, a moving target, depending on who you're speaking. You know, some make, some make a legal case, some make a political case. That's sort of thrown in this cauldron of, of uh, public opinion on some variation of con- on a constitutional basis. Through which lens, in your view, should we be examining impeachment? And then subsequently, how should we be looking at the um, uh, trial in the Senate, should that happen? Impeachment is always a political process. Now, some people say that as if that's bad or if that's somehow or other a pejorative term. It's not. Um, The framers created impeachment precisely in order to make sure that there was a political check on uh, a potentially autocratic, tyrannical, overreaching executive. They placed the power of impeachment in Congress because they wanted uh, this power to be wielded by people who were themselves politically accountable 
as of course congressmen and senators are. But when we talk about the word political, uh, it, 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 sometimes I thought of it as being a bad thing. But of course, it has multiple meanings. Uh, we can use the word political in the sort of narrowly partisan sense, in, in, in terms of what advantages Democrats or what advantages Republicans. But politics, in the large sense, is uh, you know is about the nature of the polity, the, the, the political order itself. And impeachment is political, inevitably, in the small sense, because as Alexander Hamilton warned in. In one of the Federalist Papers, anytime you have an impeachment, inevitably the partisan passions of the people who either favor or disfavor the president are in some danger of overwhelming their capacity for rational judgment. Um, but uh, it, it's also true that uh, it's political in the large sense of being uh, a mechanism by which Congress can um, protect uh, the political order itself against uh, against the, an overreaching president, and that's why it's there. Um, it is it is there so that Congress can make a fundamental judgment about the suitability of a president for the office that he holds, make a judgment about whether or not his behavior suggests um, that he represents a, a danger to the, to the constitutional order, a judgment about you know, whether his behavior. Uh, in, has so damaged his personal legitimacy that he really can't continue to serve. Um, all of those are, are not legal judgments. They're, they're ultimately large political judgments. The framers intentionally gave those judgments to Congress. Um, but they did it knowing that you know, political actors are not always wise, um, and they're not always capable of looking beyond their short-term interests to the larger interests of the country. That's the challenge that's presented to all of us right now is, is whether or not that can happen. And I think there's some reason for pessimism, to be honest. The proceedings so far in the House have um, been pretty deeply discouraging for anybody who thinks of Congress as a mature, deliberative body um, who hoped, perhaps, that congressmen of both parties would be able to examine evidence in a reasonably dispassionate way and try to you know, figure out what the truth was and act on the truth. It's pretty plain that that's not happening in, in House representatives, at least. Um, you know, and not to put too fine a point on it, but the Republican strategy throughout, uh, particularly in the, in the Judiciary Committee, but just, just as much in intelligence, has been to deny that facts are facts, maybe to deny even the possibility that facts can ever be discovered. Um, and to you know, to scream about process, uh, you know, to impugn um, the integrity, even the patriotism of longtime you know, American public servants, uh, to deflect attention as far as possible from what the president actually did. And I think that's not only deeply disgraceful uh, to them, the party that they represent, but deeply dangerous to the entire um, possibility of American democratic governance. Uh, the framers, again, understood that, you know, that impeachments of presidents were, would excite deep partisan anxiety, partisan passion, uh, partisan argument. But they had what's now seeming, I think, an increasingly uh, 
antique faith that uh, at least most legislators would, um, you know, have a sort of modicum of public virtue that when uh, the chips were down, when the, the, the country and, and the structure of government were really at risk, that they could look uh, beyond their short-term partisan political interests. Uh, I think, you know, any citizen who has watched what's happened over the past few weeks would have to doubt that their happy expectation uh, remains true any longer. Uh, so I think it's a... It, it's a frightening time for all of us, and we should all be very concerned, not just about the outcome of this particular proceeding, which I think at this point is pretty much foreordained, but about what it tells us about our system's capacity for reasoned judgment. You know, one of the things you touched on there is that our system really hinges on a cabal of individuals wanting it to work. And so if you if you don't have that, then it, it cannot work. So I guess my, my, my question to you, sir, d- given sort of binary way we, we, we look, we're looking at these issues, um, does impeachment in this particular situation, I'm not talking about Andrew Johnson or Nixon or Clinton, in this scenario, does impeachment have to end with conviction to be deemed a success, or or is that just a non-sequitur? Well, I've argued various times that impeachment doesn't have to produce removal to be successful uh, in some sense. But the question is sort of what, how, how do you measure success? Um, I would say that it's possible that impeachment in a case like this, it will be useful just as far as it is, it has provided a way for Congress to investigate facts that would not otherwise have been investigated. Remember, with respect to Ukraine, Bob Mueller had shut up his shop by the time the facts came out, started to come out. No one other than the House of Representatives was in any position to investigate this at all. If it hadn't been the House, uh, essentially nothing would have been disclosed. And to that extent, at least, the impeachment proceedings have been extremely useful and indeed you know, uh, irreplaceable. Now, the problem with that, of course, is if having disclosed all the information, having excavated all the information that they have, and having shown the American people what at least I think is pretty much irrefutable evidence of serious presidential misconduct, betrayal of uh, the responsibilities of his office. If he is, in the end, acquitted on a straight party line vote, there's there's real danger in that, in that it not only normalizes the behavior he engaged in, suggesting that there was nothing wrong, uh, but also suggests that uh, in the future, impeachment itself is no longer serious remedy or serious check on presidents so long as they can hold on to 34 senators of their own party. That's really, really dangerous because what it may do is demonstrate that the the ultimate weapon against presidential misbehavior is, in our partisan age, no longer effective. Now, the, the happy side to that coin is if having exposed all this information, if it turns out that the president and his party are 
you know, are seriously repudiated in the next election, that he loses the presidency, that Republicans, for their part, lose seats in the, in the House and the Senate. Um, I suspect one of the lessons of that loss will be that uh, a president can't behave this way, and a, and, and a party which abets a president in, in his behavior when it's exposed uh, will suffer serious uh, repercussions, which means in the end that the, the responsibility for deciding how all this is going to turn out doesn't rest on people you know, sitting in their seats in Congress. It rests with all of us. It rests with the public. If we are not willing to inform ourselves, if we're not willing to discover the truth, uh, even when there are efforts being made to obscure it, uh, when there are efforts being made to, you know, to, to excite our anger by lots of diversionary tactics and yelling and shouting and so forth and so on, if, if we're not willing to drill down on the facts, figure what they are, what they are and then act on, on what we've seen when we go to the ballot box, then the ultimate failure doesn't rest with Trump. It doesn't rest with members of Congress. It rests with us. Uh, because impeachment in the end, uh, because it's a political process, because it rests with the politically accountable members of the House and the Senate, um, ultimately comes back to all of us. Conversely, and this is um, it may this may sound like a, a partisan question, but but it is really not meant to be. Um, conversely, based on your last answer, could you not also could you also talk about the the potential damage if the House Democrats were to do nothing um, in lieu of the information that we have? What's the damage to the republic if if the House took no action? I mean, the argument, at least, is that uh, when you have misbehavior of this magnitude exposed, that, you know, that, that Congress has a constitutional obligation to investigate and to act, uh, at least to vote out impeachment when they, when they find the facts, and that if they don't, uh, they're, you know, they're accepting. They're, 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 by acquiescence, they're accepting, normalizing uh, this kind of behavior. Um, and I think in, in past years, past decades, past centuries, I think that would have been pretty universally agreed to. Uh, you know, the, the problem that we have is that, uh, you know, and I'm not going to say that maybe uh, Democrats in the current era would behave, wouldn't behave the same way uh, if, the, if the party identities were reversed. But what we can say is that Republicans, at least in the House, are just absolutely refusing to accept any component of their constitutional responsibility to check the president. Uh, and, and they're doing it in a way that, that, that is just so uh, almost unimaginably dangerous. It would be one thing for Republicans in the House to do as, frankly, Republicans did in the Nixon era, uh, to seek the facts um, fairly, honestly, uh, maybe not happily, uh, but in good faith, um, get all the facts out there, and then perhaps argue that the facts, once established, 
don't merit removal of the president. Uh, now, I think there's a hard argument to make <clears throat> in the present case, but it's, a, it's an argument that you can make. And it's an argument that doesn't deny the possibility that truth can be discovered, that doesn't deny the possibility or the reality that uh, presidents misbehave, that this, tr- this president has misbehaved to at least to some degree, um, doesn't deny the responsibility of Congress to do its job as a check on the president. But what they've done instead is to, is to ignore facts, to try to, and indeed they've actively aided and abetted the president in his refusal to provide information. One of the, you know, I mean, irony is the mild, the mildest word I can think of about, of the behavior of the uh, of the Republicans and, and their arguments in these proceedings has been the complaint that somehow the evidence against Mr. Trump is insufficient because there are some witnesses missing, um, people like Mulvaney and others. <laughs> and of course, the reason that those witnesses are missing is because the president refuses to produce them, and frankly, the Republicans uh, have repu- refused even to, uh, to, to press him on that point. And at the same time, they're basically uh, obstructing the House's own efforts to get the information. Uh, and then, uh, when Trump doesn't produce it, saying, well, see, you can't convict him because you don't have the information. You know, that's not the behavior of a constitutionally responsible party. Um, and if one of the parties is not only partisan in the ordinary sense and not only understandably wants to resist the impeachment of a of, of, of president that sort of wears the same uniform they do and on the same side, any party is going to want to do that to some extent. But if they not only are doing that, which is always predictable and to some degree inevitable, but are simply denying um, – maybe even the possibility of determining objective fact about what this president did, um, then, you know, the, then the institution of at least the House of Representatives is broken. Um, if, if this is not an institution that cares about objective fact anymore, uh, whenever the objective facts break against uh, their preferred political position, then it's hard to see how the House can function. And that's that's the more frightening thing. We can hope that one way or another, Trump will pass out of our collective lives. Uh, not likely to be by impeachment, but hopefully he'll be defeated in an election, next election. Um, and, and certainly he'll pass out of our national life in five years. Uh, but if we're left with a Congress that that essentially perform, refuse to perform its functions, and half, at least half of which doesn't even believe that facts matter when they're disadvantageous. And it's hard to see how the government works at all. That was Frank Bowman. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. I began this broadcast by suggesting America is in a real-time civics lesson. What I failed to mention at the present moment 
It is a class we're collectively failing. Our allegiance to a particular party or orthodoxy blinds us to the values articulated in the Constitution. A nation held together by a radical idea of liberty and equality can only sustain itself by having a cabal of men and women elected who want it to work and private citizens willing to hold them accountable. Right now, it appears we don't have enough to nourish this ongoing democratic experiment. That in no way is a path that leads to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.